Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness, or lack of usefulness, (laughs) of roundtable discussions, as I may mention later in the broadcast today. Which we've also expressed many a time. Yes. But Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, January 17th, 2021. It is the last episode of the Trump administration. You know, this is a real moment because we started this show July 2017. It was about six months after the Trump presidency started. Yeah, about 100 years ago. Yes, 1,000 years ago. (laughs) And we've never, like, this is the only world we've known Yes, for our podcast. Next Sunday, if indeed Donald Trump is not president, then it will be an all-new world. Well, he definitely won't be president. Yes, he'll be something else. God knows. (laughs) So, yeah, so a real turning point for us. And, you know, we're just thrilled to talk about new people. I think we talked about this last year. I don't know. What is time? But... It'll be interesting to cover a new administration, new legislative priorities, a new, well, the speaker's the same, (laughs) but a new Senate majority leader. I mean, there's just the dynamics across Washington are changing, and we're looking forward to discussing how news organizations talk and cover those changing dynamics. Oh, yeah. It's going to be really exciting. I'm truly excited. And we are making the pledge that next week you will not hear the word Trump at all. That don't make promises to people you can't keep. We are not making that promise. <laughs> All right. He's just going to, you know, go to Mar-a-Lago and disappear. The whole impeachment. No, anyway, let's <laughs> move on. I know, I know. Okay, so we are me. back to our normal. Normal new. Normal new. Our normal new. And the normal new is that we will begin with quality questionable. We'll each talk about a quality moment, a questionable mo- moment. And then we each present to each other. An interesting moment in politics and an interesting moment in journalism that we observed in our respective Sunday shows. So, Brendan, what did you watch today? So I took a look at This Week and I also took a look at Face the Nation. Yeah. So I looked at Fox News Sunday, State of the Union and Meet the Press. So, Naomi, what was a why don't we start with something quality? It's been, you know, a lot of questionable things have been happening these days. Tell tell me something of, of quality that you saw on the Sunday shows that you covered today. So my quality, obs- <laughs> not that my observations quality, but <laughs> my quality moment that I observed is something that I've been eager to talk about, to hear thought leaders on. I feel like for the last two years, and apparently an insurrection is what is necessary for this to finally happen, but it's the reckoning within the GOP and really thinking about What is the future of the Republican Party? Is it going to embrace and hold on to the Trump supporters, the far right Trump supporters, or are establishment Republicans really going to try to take their party back? And 
like I, I genuinely don't understand why this hasn't been kind of more front and center these last couple of years. I think especially after Trump lost in the midterms and he was doing so poorly in the presidential election, like it might have been helpful to discuss this earlier. But here we are finally having this conversation after five people died at after an insurrection at the Capitol. Well, I feel like they couldn't have their election postmortem because Trump refused to concede. No, I'm not talking. I'm saying this shifting in the Republican Party has been happening for a long time. And now we're talking about it when it's a much more clear delineation in the path. But anyway, there was two people in particular that I wanted to note that were talking about this that I thought were worthwhile. The first was a moment between Chuck Todd and Rich Lowry. He's the editor of the National Review. And this was a moment in the panel on Meet the Press. You know, it's interesting, Rich. I think in some ways, Claire, um, when she's speaking for the Democrats, they have it a little bit easier. They could ignore this 30 percent. Um, while they govern for a while. It, it's going to be hard to fully ignore them, but they, they can sort of work around them. The Republican Party can't because that 30% translates into about 70% of the party. What does a Mitch McConnell do with those folks? Well, it's tricky. Donald Trump is going to be the biggest figure in the party for a long time here. He has more energy, has more grassroots supporters. McConnell has more institutional influence and Washington. But what we've seen over the last week or two are the opening salvos of what will be a Republican civil war that will run through Republican Senate primaries all the way down to dog catcher races. And Trump, had his, his voters at the margins have soured on him <laughs> some, but they haven't abandoned him. And I think what a lot of people, including some Senate Republicans, haven't fully counted on is I think there will be a ferocious backlash that we haven't really seen yet uh, to a post-presidency effort to bar Trump from running from office mm. again, which is going to strike a lot of Republicans as vindictive and undemocratic. And, I mean, Americans in general love a war metaphor, but that is especially true for Republicans because this civil war metaphor continues on Fox News Sunday with Carl Rove. Well, that raises uh, the, the big question that I asked Asa Hutchinson, Carl, which is, where does the Republican Party go from here? And is there a place for Donald Trump in the GOP in coming years? Well, the Republican Party is broken. It's fractured. It's in the midst of a civil war. Uh, and um, it's going to be an ugly several years. And it's not going to be six months. It's not going to be a year. It's going to be years before the Republican Party can put itself back together. It needs to rebuild. It needs to find a way to take the traditional Republican uh, coalition and, uh, and uh, bring in and keep uh, as much of the Trump voters, the ordinary voters who cared about him uh, taking on the establishment and taking on the elites on the East and West Coast. But it, the Republican Party, let's not kid ourselves, uh, it is in the midst of a civil war. When you have the, the son of the president of the United States calling anyone who opposes his, his father a zero and, and promising uh, to uh, come after you in a primary, this ain't going to end uh, quickly and it ain't going to be pretty. And uh, the Republican Party needs to find a way to return to its conservative roots and to update those principles and apply them to the new circumstances in which the country finds itself. But it, it needs to get beyond Donald Trump. And that ain't going to be easy because he's not going to want to uh, uh, retire and uh, and sit on the sidelines. It's so interesting, Naomi, you know, hearing this, I feel like 
I mean, you can say it's a civil war or not a civil war. Obviously, looking back on the history of things, Republicans were a lot more resistant within Congress to Donald Trump when he first entered office, as we covered, you know, in those many, many episodes that we've done in Polylog since 2017. And then what happened? It was like election after election, resignation after resignation, a lot of those non-Trump Republican representatives and senators just disappeared or were primaried away or just walked away. And Trump, you know, consolidated his power the Jeff within Flakes the party. Of the Senate and yes. so forth. I believe it was on, I don't know, I listened to so many podcasts this week. It's crazy. I can't say which one, but <laughs> it might have been the Chuck Todd cast. But there was a conversation about the Republican Party and, and Congress. And it was about how essentially in the House of Representatives, these, you know, like half of them, are actually now I'm thinking it's the slate political gap fest, but half of them are actually Trump Republicans. Right. You know, they have been elected since Trump became president. Half of the Republican conference there in the Senate. That's not the case. It's still kind of the Senate of like George W. The George W. Bush era. Right. And so that and was the a, new ones are kind of like Holly who are part of. Yes. I mean, they're there, but they're not as. A, a huge presence, a huge force. Yeah, so I think it, we need to have some recognition and these speakers need to have some recognition that they're they're presenting it almost like this civil war is a new thing. When it's like, actually, it's been going on since mm-hmm. 2017. Yes. Trump has kind of won. And now because he lost the presidency, there's like a new salvo. There's a new, and he did this insane thing at the Capitol, right? Right. But that has kind of like changed things. He has become weakened as a figure just as he's kind of like consolidated so much power within the party. And I think we need to recognize that he's kind of already won in a lot of ways, but there's still these like holdouts, these rebels right. or and, whatever. And that's the thing that I, like kind of gets to me. It's like, if we were having this conversation on the Sunday news shows about the changing dynamics of the party as... In the last two to three years, one, people might have recognized that the party was changing more, like, in, in front of their eyes, I think. And two, yeah, there seems to be, like, can McConnell, can other establishment Republicans crawl their way back to power is essentially the question right and now. And are they willing to, right? Are they willing to? That's the question we all have on our minds right now is, are they willing to step out and do the work? Right. You know, it's one it's one thing to like make a statement here or there, but are you going to do anything about it? Right? Like McConnell likes well, the, to say, "Well, this is going to be a vote. The senators can vote their conscience." Well, to hell with that. You are the leader, right? If you believe something is right, then lead. Use your political influence and power that you have to press these people to get on the right side of history. I, I'm not disagreeing with you, but you're kind of talking about McConnell points on like specific legislative moments or the impeachment mm-hmm. or whatever. And Rich Lowry and Carl Rove are talking about the general trajectory of right. the party. That's true. Right. That's true. And yeah. so I do appreciate, I can't believe I appreciate anything Carl Rove says, but I think he's right that it's going to be a long it's a long slog and it's a long fight and it's not something that's going to be fixed on whether or not you vote for Biden's economic package or not. It's about the general, what candidates are you investing in? What races are you fighting for? And who are you recruiting for, you know, to challenge new seats? And it's it's a much more broader strategic long-term effort that the GOP needs to reckon with. And 
it should be interesting is, yeah. is, is what I'm trying to say. I think, I think two things that aren't clear to me that were highlighted enough in these clips and these discussion points, and of course they are just a paragraph here or there. I'm sure there's a lot more both of these folks have to say on this topic, but it's the information ecosystem, right? The information ecosystem, first of all, that is rampant with misinformation, disinformation in the Republican media sphere. But that ecosystem, beyond all of its misinformation, disinformation, it's kind of got a mind of its own. I mean, we saw this within, you know, throughout the Trump administration, where Donald Trump would be moved to make a decision based on what he saw watching TV, right? And that, that TV, whoever was making those, those programming decisions, was having a huge influence on the trajectory of the party because Trump saw it on TV, and then he went out and said it. And then all these Republicans were suddenly behind it because whatever Trump said was their platform. They don't have a platform. They just have what Trump says. And so the power of this media ecosystem to shape the party, they're talking almost like it's only these leaders, these politicians who are in this battle. Right. But it's yeah. the, the, the media has so much power on that side. It. I'm not discounting what you're saying. That's not the point of what I was trying to bring up with these two clips. But you are bringing up an interesting point that came up on State of the Union, which was Jake Tapper's very long extended closing, which was the virus of misinformation. I don't know who these writers are, but he said, you know, that there's a virus plaguing Americans of misinformation and and he called it MAGA media, which he never said Fox News, but he kept calling it MAGA media, which you could, I guess, clump a lot of far-right media organizations in that too. But their role and how complicit are they in terms of perpetuating falsehoods, encouraging <laughs> things that are just not constitutional to the president and, and reinforcing this whole, not just negative, but unconstitutional, illegal messaging or claims to Americans. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Brendan, what's your quality moment? Okay, this is a quick one, very simple. And this is something that we heard from Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation. She was asking something very similar, kind of in the same area, the sphere of where Trump's role is within the Republican Party. She was asking it to Republican governor of West Virginia, Jim Justice. What a name, Governor Justice. I mean, wow. Lucky, lucky. Yeah, made to be a politician. And yet he says... I ain't no politician. <laughs> Do you believe that your party, the Republican Party, remains the party of President Trump after he leaves office January 20th? Well, I don't know, Margaret, you know, because to be perfectly honest, you know, there's uh, division all across our country right now. There's no question if we just step back and just look at it, you know, are we doing stuff the right way? I mean, at the end of the day, we've got the division. We know where we're at. And we've got all kinds of problems. We need to absolutely lay down our arms as far as Republicans and Democrats and right. quit pivoting ourselves against one another like that. At some point in time, we've got to realize we're Americans. And I don't say that lightly. I just don't say that as gobbledygook because I'm not a politician. I've never cool. been that. And I speak the truth. And, and so well, first and foremost, Americans need to be united, not divided. OK, not a politician. Then you're going to give me a straight answer on the question then uh, of whether you think the president should continue to be leading the Republican Party, given that he continues to not clearly say Joe Biden is the fairly elected president of the United States. 
Well, I would say this. There's no question that, that all the experts and judges, all the judges, every, you know, all the courts, everybody has said that we had an election and Joe Biden is our president. We should respect that in, yeah. every, in every way. I would, I would say first and foremost, no question that our president has gotten out over his skis many, many different times. But really, it's the people's decision. It's not my decision to weigh in. All I am doing is just stirring the pot when I weigh in. I want us to be together. Yeah. Forget Republican and Democrat. So I really appreciated Margaret Brennan's, you know, follow up, which is, all right, if you're not a politician, why don't you give us a straight answer then? Stop kind of walking this line of, oh, you know, Democrats and Republicans, we just forget about the labels. Let's just focus on doing the right thing, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, no, if you're a member of this party, you have influence over this party and you need to, to say whether this man who was literally impeached for inciting an insurrection, whether he has a real future within the party that you are a member of. What kind of answer do you, did you get from that, Naomi, listening? Did he answer the question? This non-politician? <laughs> no, he's quite the politician for a non-politician. Yeah, he, he's an interesting character actually himself. Apparently, he's the wealthiest man in West Virginia. His net worth is $1.9 billion. He ran as a Democrat, won <laughs> oh, yeah, as a Democrat. Oh, yeah, he's the one who switched, right? And then switched parties to become a Republican. In what, 2017, 2018? In, in, it was during the Trump administration that yeah, he switched. He, yeah, it was seven months after winning in the 2016 election. He switched to become a Republican. He rallied with Donald Trump. I remember that yeah. very vaguely and like Manchin being like the lone statewide elected Democrat now. Yeah. He inherited a coal mine. Well. And then built a bunch of other companies. That's where we went wrong, Brendan. We didn't inherit coal mines. I think he's just got that buddy buddy billionaire thing with, with <laughs> Donald Trump, you know? Well, Trump loves rich people. Okay, Brendan, let's switch it over and go to questionable. Yeah, Naomi, what's questionable that kind of stood out to you in the shows you covered? Okay, so my questionable moment, questionable interview was an interview I saw on Fox News Sunday with Brian Deese. He's going to be the incoming Biden economic advisor. So he's essentially replacing what Larry Kudlow is to Trump. That's what Brian Deese is going to be to President-elect Biden. Now, did he have his own TV show like Kudlow did? Clearly, you need that to have that role, I think. No. <laughs> and, I mean, I want it... Okay, this is the thing. Like, I am very glad that Biden is building a team of competent people, but you are coming into power in a pandemic where people have not been working for almost a year now. People are devastated. Like, you need to come onto these interviews and convince your your journalist host, like, with fire in your belly, why these priorities are important. And I got zero level of enthusiasm Ooh. from this interview with Brian Deese, and it just really got me so upset. It sounds like it's in great contrast to what we heard from former Governor Granholm, who's going to be Biden's energy secretary, we heard a few weeks ago. Right, exactly. This is not the level of enthusiasm I heard from Brian Deese. And he's actually talking about a very specific proposal that is going to be moving forward in Congress very shortly that ideally should be passed very quickly. And so take a listen to these like dud of an answer. Let, let's drill down on specific parts of the package. You are calling for another $1,400 
direct payment to the vast majority of Americans. There's criticism. Why not target it just to those people who've actually lost a job? There are a lot of people who will get the, the $1,400 on top of the $600 who've been doing just fine and haven't been hit by COVID. And then there is criticism from conservatives that you have snuck in a liberal wish list into this package. Uh, let me put some items on the screen. $20 billion for public transit, $9 billion for cybersecurity, raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Whether those last items, Brian, are a good policy idea or not, are, can you really say that they are part of emergency COVID relief? Well, if you look at the core of this package, what it's doing is it's going at those core challenges. So about $400 billion in this package is going at the vaccination effort and getting schools reopened. Another portion, as you said, is to provide direct those. Brian, you'll get... You'll, you'll get used to me interrupting. That's what I do on this show. I'm asking, though, about these specific parts, transit, $15 minimum sure. wage. I understand some parts of it clearly are COVID relief, but why add this stuff to the bill? Sure. Well, let's let's look at each of those. The cybersecurity resources there are in the wake of the solar winds hacked. We have seen and now understand significant vulnerabilities that are exa exacerbated by COVID and the fact that so much federal operations are happening online. We need those resources to secure our systems now. Transit. Look, our transit systems uh, across the country are facing acute crisis. That's not happening in Democratic states or, or Republican states. That's happening around the country. And by providing relief now, we can help to avoid diminished service and diminished support uh, when we come out of this crisis. And the $15 minimum wage is a, a, a a concrete and direct way to help support those workers who are out there on the front lines right now, providing services to all of us and give them direct support and a direct boost right now. Where's the desperation of Americans who are struggling right now and the need to support them and to go above and beyond what the Trump administration was willing to do the last year? Like, I just... I, I don't feel it. I don't hear yeah, it. Yeah, you yeah. definitely don't feel it. It's a very academic kind it's of very, style response. Yeah, it's very, very academic. And like, again, I'm sure he's giving Biden great advice. Like, I'm not saying he's not competent. And maybe I'm just like used to like these like fiery, empty voices by Trump. It might be that too. But I was just, it just occurred to me that I really hope the Biden administration understands that Democratic voters are hungry for like action and movement and 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 progress on democratic priorities and passion for those priorities right and like people want to see that their vote was worth it like and, and this wasn't very convincing there's one other well i do, I do want to say i mean like you said i think that the answers are competent you know what i mean it's right. like it's like you passed it like you're, these are competent answers. It's okay. You know, if you're being graded on the test, you know, you get the check mark next to the answer. But you're not blowing anyone away with these answers. And, if and you're not and you're not like kind of like you were saying, you're not underscoring the pain that's out there. Right. And you're not helping people feel it. I, it, it needs almost a little of that Bernie fire. Like, I know. You know I can't believe that these are the words are coming out of my mouth. But seriously, like about people struggling and hurting. But, but like. And I think it's because it does not reflect the moment that yeah. Americans are in. Mm -hmm. Like, if you were talking about 
general infrastructure investment for the next 30 to 40 years, like this tone is perfectly acceptable. Mm -hmm. But to talk about people who've been out of work for a year, people who have lost loved ones, lost the the breadwinner of their households like this does not this is not cut it the answer the answer yeah this, and it's a great this, question by the way right there's one other moment from this interview that I was just also wanted to underscore that makes me I don't know if unimpressed is the word but you know like the side eye emoji or it's like really mm-hmm. like that's that's like my the state of my emotional state in hearing this interview and it's in the part of the interview where Chris Wallace asks about. Biden's approach to ending possibly the filibuster. I'm just unimpressed with the potential strategy in which they, in which these answered this. I'm sorry. Take a listen. President-elect Biden has kept open the possibility of ending the filibuster if Republicans were to block you. You have 50 votes, uh, but you need 60 to break a filibuster. If they they block you, would ending the filibuster so you could pass it with 51 votes with Vice President Harris, would ending the filibuster be on the table? Well, look, we think we need to move quickly here. But I would also say, you know, there's a lot of skepticism that the uh, president-elect's call for unity and working together was going to resonate, and he won the election resoundingly. There was a lot of skepticism that Congress would come together in December in a bipartisan way and deliver a down payment on this relief, and that happened. So let's see where we can get here. There is a lot of, uh, again, a lot of elements of this plan that have support across the board both in Washington and in state capitals and around the country. Uh, but we need to act. We need to act quickly. And that's what the economy is telling us. That's what the experts are telling us. And so that's our priority. So basically, he's saying we're not going to need the filibuster. We're just going to really, really cross our fingers right. to make this happen. Well, and they could get it through budget reconciliation as well. I mean, that wasn't mentioned at all as a, as a possibility, but they could get it through with 51 votes With yeah, through budget reconciliation. It's just... I, I hope the Biden administration, or and maybe it's just Brian Deese, I don't know. I hope they're willing to be aggressive for the priorities that they think are important. Like, Americans, I feel like, want to see that. And when I say aggressive, I mean just say why we need it. Say why you're moving forward with X proposals. Say why you're moving forward with, you know, like, if you were to change this with, like, vaccine rollout, and this was, like, the level of tepidness, that we heard, it would be like completely unacceptable. And the economic sensitivity of this country is equally devastating and it should not be acceptable. Strong points. Brendan, what's your questionable moment? So you'll hear me in the rest of this episode talking a lot about This Week, ABC's show. And I thought that This Week did a pretty good job throughout the episode. However, the beginning, literally the first seconds... And the last seconds were a mess. There were lots of problems. Uh, the first one, very simple to spot the problem. I'm just going to go ahead and play it for you. Good morning and welcome to this week. Insurrection, impeachment, inauguration. Three Wednesdays, three weeks unlike any others in American history. And in just three days, Joseph Robinette Biden will take the oath of office, address an America in crisis, plagued by a pandemic, economic hardship, deeply divided, reeling from the most dramatic act of domestic terrorism our country has ever seen, all inspired by the president leaving office. So when I heard this, I thought, hmm, very, very powerful, powerful to talk about these 
literally, you know, every Wednesday, there's something crazy happening in America, something huge, monumental, right? Insurrection, impeachment, inauguration. What a hell of a way to start 2021. But I also thought, hmm, that sounds familiar. And the reason it sounds familiar is that it is the cover of New York Magazine. This week, it got tons of play on social media because it's extremely powerful. It's just three giant words vertically stacked on the cover. And in tiny little words, it says three Wednesdays in America. It's like somebody on the This Week team saw this cover, thought it was powerful, and decided to turn it into literally the first thing that George Stephanopoulos says when he greets us. But not to show the cover of the magazine and not to credit the team that put it together. That is just journalistic theft, just completely. It, it, they literally stole it. And like the cover of a magazine like matters. Like New York magazines, their first cover about impeachment won like the cover of the year award from the American Society of Magazine Editors, their first cover about impeachment. And so they, they approached this very carefully. And their art director, Thomas Alberti, says that, quote, we wanted to capture the events of the last few weeks and create a cover that was monumental. As it happened, insurrection, impeachment, and inauguration all start with I and are about the same length. The words lent themselves to being a poster-type sculpture. And as the New York, New York Magazine writes about their cover, they say that the results are a black, white, and red cover as stark as our politics, which they should be proud of and they should be credited for. So big, big thumbs down for the This Week team in not crediting New York Magazine, if you're going to quote them, and literally steal almost word for word what they did on their cover for the start of your weekly show, which is some might call a magazine show. Yeah, people definitely call the Sunday shows a magazine show. I mean, and it wouldn't take just literally as we saw it on New York Magazine. Like, it wouldn't even take away from the intro just to give the credit. Yeah, it wouldn't It wouldn't at all. And the final questionable moment is the closing. The show started very strong despite this theft that we had in the beginning. The show was generally pretty strong. And then it just completely petered out at the end. The panel was stuffed with political commentators, political strategists, Democratic strategists, Republican strategists, two from each side of the aisle. And George, that's it. No journalists, no analysts, like actual political analysts. These are just political spokespeople, really, for their own parties. Rahm Emanuel, of course, Chris Christie included. And it was just extremely, extremely frustrating that so much of the show was taken up with this and and was also badly managed by George Stephanopoulos. Listen to the end of this show. I got to go to Sarah Fagan on this because, Sarah, I want to bring you in on this. Does Mitch McConnell vote to convict or not? Sarah? I think, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if he will vote to convict or not. I think he's certainly leaving it open. And I would argue that the... Uh, that, you know, him letting that story in the New York Times unanswered that said he was uh, unsure of what he was going to do speaks volumes about where his head is. And the fact that he's certainly not going to whip his caucus on this vote uh, means that more Republicans you know, will but, vote to impeach the president. But it, it, if uh, George, this is a long trial George, and if there. But then George, finish the point quickly. I'm sorry, well, I, I, wanted, I, just, I think we fail. Stop. Go ahead, Karen. Just very if this quickly, is a long George, trial, I think we fail the if test of history trial, of this will... moment. 
<laughs> okay, I'm just going to ask you all real quickly, final question. Yes yeah, or no I'm answer. Sorry. Will the Senate vote to convict? Go down the line. Karen Finney first. They should, but more importantly, the larger test of this moment in history is not just about convicting Donald Trump. It is about accountability and understanding the divisions in this country and figuring out how we unify and heal and move forward and acknowledging that these divisions have been exploited by Trump, but they exist. This is who we are. It's not who we have to be. And that is all we have time for, so I don't get the whole, all the yeses or noes. Thank you all very much. That is all for us today. What a waste of time. Give me back those three minutes. What a mess, huh? I mean, and they actually, <laughs> looking at the transcript here, it went on a little more, a little more than we were able to capture here audio-wise, but apparently, according to the transcript, it went on where George said, thank you all very much, we'll be right back. And you hear Rahm Emanuel say, thanks, Karen. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, it's in the official transcript. Incredible. <laughs> what a mess. What a mess. But the idea of Chris Christie annoyed in his little home office makes me a little happy. Well, so. that was Ram who said that, but it seems like they were they were all kind of annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. All right, Naomi. So why don't we talk about something in politics that stood out to you today on these political shows? Was there anything political discussed? Can that, you believe it? There actually out? was. No, but in all seriousness, there was an interview that just blew me away. and In a good way or a bad way? Good way. Ooh. And I highly, highly recommend people spend the six to seven minutes from State of the Union when Jake Tapper talks to Representative Jamie Raskin. Now, Congressman Jamie Raskin is a Democrat from Maryland, and he is the lead impeachment manager that is going to be kind of indicting President Trump and kind of making the case to the Senate. Right. There are these, like, the House votes to impeach, and then they send managers over who are essentially like the lawyers the prosecuting for the, case. the case. Exactly. So he's Senate. like the lead prosecutor. There's a few things that I thought were especially powerful. I just kind of want to give a little bit more context about Congressman Raskin in that he is a constitutional lawyer. Prior to becoming a congressman, he had already devoted his life to the Constitution, and he also most recently, literally just days before the insurrection at the Capitol, also lost his son by suicide. Oh, my God. He's that He's congressman. that congressman. Wow. And you probably heard some of the stories where his daughter and his son-in-law, who's married to his other daughter, were also in the Capitol, and they were kind of hid away in a room as the rioters were kind of banging on doors trying to get in and they were being hidden by his chief of staff and the personal turmoil that this man is, is experiencing while at the same time being committed to defending our constitution and putting accountability on this president who put so many people in danger is just astounding and so powerful it was an in-person interview that jake had uh, with Congressman Raskin. And it's oh, just, wow. yeah, from start to finish, just totally amazing. And so on the impeachment side, I <laughs> I was extremely impressed. If Polylog listeners, longtime Polylog listeners remember, we were 
we've been impressed with Congressman Schiff and that he can always make the case very effectively. I think Congressman Raskin is just as good, if not better. Take a listen to the start of the interview in which he really encapsulates the violent moment in which senators and congressmen and women were facing and Trump's role in it. And look, you know, I I, I know that everybody wants to focus on trial tactics and strategy and so on. I want people to focus on the solemnity and the gravity of these events. Five Americans are dead because a violent mob was encouraged, exhorted, and incited by the President of the United States of America, which broke into the Congress of the United States, into the Capitol, and came within a hair's breadth of hanging Vice President Pence. I mean, the, ears, the, the, the words are still ringing in the ears of the members. Hang Mike Pence. Hang Mike Pence. They, uh, they built a gallows outside the Capitol of the United States. There was uh, an assassination party hunting for Nancy Pelosi. So this cannot be at the level of normal partisan push and pull and just kind of throwing rhetorical brickbats back and forth. This was an attack on our country. Yep. Wow. Very powerful. And that brings the passion, you know, the, the, the human weight of these events to bear. It's kind of like what was missing from that economic story that you were highlighting earlier. Right. I mean, politics isn't all rhetoric, but you need to paint a picture. And the picture that we saw on January 6th was bloody and fatal and scary and violent. And to talk... And yet... Lucky that more people weren't killed, assassinated, totally lucky, and, dragged out, hung. And to show that full picture in just those few sentences is highly effective. And I'm very curious and very eager to see the type of work that he does in the Senate trial moving forward. The other part of the interview that I wanted to note is when he talks about his son, Tommy, who died by suicide on December 31st, 2020, and how the loss motivates his work. When we lost him, he had um, not only beloved friends at Harvard Law School, but he was teaching uh, a course with Michael Sandel, Justice, uh, as a teaching fellow uh, at the college. And so he had students of his own, and uh, he graded all of his papers and exams and wrote many pages analyzing the work of the students and writing back to them. And he made donations in each of their names to different charitable groups that he thought would be consistent with the values of the student. And so some of them went to uh, give directly or to Oxfam or so on. And um, uh, I asked him why he did that. And he quoted um, something that Father Berrigan had said about the great Dorothy Day. He said, uh, well, like Father Berrigan said about Dorothy Day, she lived as though the truth were true. And he said, I want to show them um, that the truth is true and we can live that way. So, um, you know, people are asking me uh, why I decided to do this. Um, But I did it really uh, with my son in my heart uh, and helping lead the way. I feel him in my chest. Um, When we went to count the Electoral College votes and it came under that ludicrous attack, um, I felt my son with me, uh, and I was most concerned with uh, our youngest daughter 
and my son-in-law, who's married to our other daughter, who were with me that day, who got caught in a room off of the house floor, and between them and me was a rampaging armed mob that could have killed them easily and was banging on the doors where they were hiding under a desk with my chief of staff, Julie Tagan. These events are personal to me, Jake. There was an attack on our country. There was an attack on our people. There are thousands of people who work on Capitol Hill, not just members, but staff members and Capitol Hill police officers who were pushed and shoved and punched in the face, pummeled and hit over the head with fire extinguishers. And the president of the United States did nothing to stop it for more than two hours as members of Congress were calling him and begging him to do something. And he continued to watch it on TV and to enjoy their, you know, insurrection tailgate party where they were celebrating the attack on our democracy. This president has been impeached already twice, and we just want the Senate to conduct a serious trial where every member of the Senate lives up to his or her constitutional oath to render impartial judgment as a juror. Congressman, I I mean, I, I, I can't even begin to express my condolences for what you and your wife and, and your daughters and, and family are, are, are dealing You just lost your son, and now you're in Congress worrying about your daughter and your other daughter's husband because of these terrorists who had attacked the Congress. That trauma on top of trauma I, just seems so debilitating. Well, um, I, you know, I'm not going to lose my son at the end of 2020 and lose my country and my republic in 2021. It's not going to happen. Um, wow. Such powerful words. Yeah, I was actually on the State of the Union Twitter page. You can see the whole interview with Congressman Raskin. It, it's right on top of their feed. And I think it's so important to remember that Members of Congress, senators, they're like human beings just like us with things to lose. Their staff have families, have loved ones, have it's I don't really have the words to say like just how disappointing and scary and hurtful it is to see all those violent terrorists roaming through the Capitol. But I think Congressman Raskin does a really good job to explain why no one should have to think that that's okay at any level. And it is completely acceptable to expect the president to do something about it. Yeah. And that's what he, through his humanity here, impresses upon us. Right. This, the starkness of human life being threatened in danger and the very people in danger from the president's own party who he has met and knows and supposedly is an ally with, are calling him on the phone, begging him to stop. And as Congressman Raskin says here, Trump was watching it on enjoying, TV. enjoying what he was watching on TV and wouldn't, wouldn't do anything. For people he knows, for the Constitution he's sworn to uphold. And, and it, when, when you hear this, you think, how could anybody, right? how could anybody ever not vote to convict Trump? And I think that's the people who were there. Right. People who were there and like this whole conversation around like we need to heal, we need to unify or whatever. And it's just like, I don't know, I I get reminders of like (laughs) the violent, stark reality of what happened. And it's just like, no, the only thing that's right is true accountability. So anyway, I know we've been on this a lot longer and this is a clip much longer than we usually have. But 
it's helpful to keep in mind how some of the lead voices are thinking about this as we will get more coverage in the coming weeks. Well, and I think we're going to hear this story on the floor of the Senate and the world is going to watch as they watched the Supreme Court nomination fight. And I don't know how people are going to be able to hide from that story and vote otherwise. Yeah. And it's interesting. I'm pretty sure it was in this interview, but Congressman Raskin talks about how the jurors are also witnesses. <laughs> yeah. And how how completely strange that is. So, Well, I heard somebody, I think it was a Republican who voted against the impeachment in the House of Representatives. And he said something like, you know, there hasn't even been any evidence. And it's like, you're the evidence. <laughs> right. You're there. Right. He's like, there haven't been any witnesses. You're the witness. <laughs> do you not know this? Were you, do you, did you forget? What happened a week ago? It's crazy. Yeah. All right, Brendan, take us to another moment in politics that stood out to you. Well, actually, this is a very, very good transition here because what I want to highlight is from, as I mentioned before, this week, George Stephanopoulos was interviewing one of the Republican congressmen, one of 10, who actually voted to impeach President Trump in the House. This is Republican Congressman Peter Meyer. He's from Michigan. This is his first term. As he says here, it very likely will be his last or could be his last. But he felt that accountability was the only way to go. In the wake of the Capitol siege, you called this the worst week of your life. You voted for impeachment. I read uh, that you, you and some of your colleagues may also be buying body armor to protect yourself. What have these last few days been like? Absolutely gut-wrenching. Uh, impeaching a president, especially a president of my own party, was nothing that we ever hoped to do. Um, uh, many of us deliberated deeply. This was not as easy as just saying what is in our best political interest. But frankly, looking at the evidence, looking at the facts of the case, reading the article, um, and, and asking, is this true by our own experience, by our lived experience? And it was. You know, I, I think this is a time for, for reflection, but it's also a time for accountability. And that's something that I am deeply committed to. Um, you know, I'm calling on my party to restore trust, to restore the trust of the voting public and to ensure that we never allow the actions that led up to January 6th and what happened on January 6th. We never allow that outburst of political violence to occur in our name again. So, Brendan, this is actually really interesting because this is very similar to my moment in journalism that I mm. wanted to discuss. And I think what is very interesting here is the show's choice to find these Republicans who voted for impeachment and having them explain or share what it's like and why they're doing it and just understanding their motivations and justifications for their actions. Because so many times we're just hearing from the whip or the leader of the caucus or whatever, like, what is the general state of the party or like, you know, a caucus, as opposed to understanding like one individual man's decision to do what he did. And it's also kind of the humanity that we saw in in the previous interview we just discussed. Yeah, well, like he says, kind of really like highlighting what we heard in the previous one where he says, he looked at the article of impeachment and asked, is this true by our own experience, our lived experience? Those are the words that Representative Meyer uses here. And he says, yes, it was. But he goes even broader than this. And this is what really struck me was a deeper analysis of the kind of trap that Republicans 
kind of wander into whenever they humor President Trump, as they did in the area of voter fraud. Take a listen. How do you explain how, why so few of your Republican colleagues agreed with you on impeachment? Why so many uh, joined those objections to the elections and propagated those false claims about voter fraud? You know, I, I can't speak to what's in anyone else's hearts. I know I've, I've talked with many of my colleagues, asked them, um, you know, and, and compared where we were on various issues. Many of them arrived at their decisions, I think, in, in an honest and forthright way, uh, specifically when it came to, you know, the objections to certifying the Electoral College or, you know, kind of more colloquially, an attempt to overturn the election. Um, you know, there were concerns there. And, and to me, the challenge is not what the individual concern of one individual was. It, what happens when all of those concerns are become a collective uh, and, and the narrative becomes something that can be very powerful? You know, that's what we saw with the stop the steal argument after November 3rd. It, it was individual concerns about electoral integrity building to something that ended up supporting the president's, you know, false idea that he had won in a landslide. And, and that was what inspired his followers to come out on January 6th. That was the message that he was propagating. But we need to make sure that we move away from a politics of deception. We need to make sure that we have leaders who are telling folks who trust them what they need to hear, not just what they want to hear. I'm kind of curious as to what the follow-up question was after this and if George had any kind of specific, like, what are the things you're doing or the actionable things that you're expecting or, like, I hope he's moving forward on on these requests um, and, and vision for the future in terms of letting go of disinformation. Like, okay, like. What were the last things your office tweeted out or shared on Facebook? Or I, I don't know. I just, I, I hope. Like, what was your role in this? What was your role and what are you doing next? Like, yeah. what are the actionable things that you're doing after living this, through this experience? Well, looking at the transcript here, I can tell you that his next question was related to his vote being political suicide. And he, he basically asked, are you concerned you ended your career with that vote? I think, though, what, what struck me was the way he, Congressman, Congressman Meyer, explains how possibly legitimate or at least understandable concerns about one type of voter irregularity here or there that, that each individual congressperson or senator can kind of hold close to and say, yeah, you know, I think there is something to say here, how all of that adds up collectively to a cacophony of voices that seemingly support the president's massive and unprecedented claim that President Trump won in a landslide and that there was this rampant voter fraud, when in reality, you can't prove that, right? But it's like the each little tiny little thing adds up to this picture that sounds like it's supporting and behind President Trump. Representative Meyer is saying here, we need to be cognizant of the end result of how our voices are being twisted or used to reach a conclusion that is being broadcast to our voters that is not something we endorse. We do not believe this, but our voices are being used this way, so we need to be aware of that, and we need to maybe shut the hell up or uh, on the voter fraud side or speak the hell up right. when we see it being twisted. It's it's demanding more, <laughs> which shouldn't be so revolutionary, but apparently it is. 
Yeah, well, this, to me, it connects with what I saw this morning, which was very interesting. Chuck Todd actually guest wrote the Politico playbook, which they have been having guests that have been more or less good uh, as their editors for their morning newsletter. And Chuck Todd, writing today, talked about Republicans in the party. Literally, he said, quote, taking back your party from these extremists starts with raising your voice more. Be proud that you are pro-democracy. Be proud that you think there is a better way to disagree with your political opponents than dehumanizing insults. If you're appalled by the misinformation that you have to deal with from your constituents, try and dilute the poison. And then Chuck Todd goes on to say, stop hiding your outrage because you fear a primary challenge. And he closes by saying, I'm sure many elected officials, when they first decide to run for office, dream of serving during a moment of consequence. Well, here you are. This era will be studied by historians for decades, and your actions or inactions will be the subject of scrutiny and debate. They won't be studying how you handled the debate over marginal tax rates, which is, I think, in Chuck Todd's words, a way of saying, don't hold on to that little fact that might be true. Speak out on the big thing, right? I think this is a good segue to my moment in journalism because it was actually something on at Meet the Press. I didn't know you are going to bring up uh, the political playbook. And so I, it's actually quite relevant. Chuck Todd invited and interviewed Congresswoman Nancy Mace. She's a new freshman congresswoman from South Carolina. She is a Republican who voted against President Trump's impeachment because she says that the House didn't give full due process. But she's also someone who voted against the challenge to the election results. So it's kind of an interesting... Yeah, place to be. Place to be, you know, kind of in the... And she has also mentioned that she does support censoring the president. So definitely not on the side of Minority Leader McCarthy or Scalise, but... Because McCarthy voted to invalidate the election election results. Right. And this interview kind of caught me off guard because it was beyond the loudest Republican talking points. And it gave me some context and some insight as to how certain members of Congress, certain members of the GOP feel at this very moment. And... That's kind of the same feel that I got in in the clip that you showed, Brendan, of Congressman Meyer, where trying to understand these people's individual choices and what they're willing to say about them. Grant, you know, and, and I think it's important that the shows seek out those voices and let us hear from them directly. Of course, they're not always going to say yes to come onto the show. There's there could be a lot of blowback to getting national attention for an unpopular opinion. And so I just really wanted to give kudos to Chuck Todd for this conversation that he had with Congresswoman Mace. Take a listen to the first clip in which she describes that there needs to be accountability to President Trump, but she doesn't think impeachment necessarily is the right way. One of the things, I gave my first speech on the floor of the House last week. I didn't want to do that as a freshman one weekend, but I stated very unequivocally that the House has every right to impeach the President of the United States. But the fact that we bypassed judiciary, we did not open up an investigation 
um, that we bypass due process, so that set a dangerous constitutional precedent for others. Um, no matter, even if you think the president is guilty as hell, like many, many do believe, there has to be mm-hmm. due process. There has to be an investigation. We have to go, even if it's through a special committee work or judiciary, those things needed to happen in order for impeachment, really. I think you would have gotten more Republicans on board if it were done with due process, with an investigation. And then Chuck continues on describing that there is, of course, a timeliness issue. Yes, there is a reason for that. Right. right. And she answers that she understood that the timeline made it very complicated. And that's why a censure made even more sense to her. The other point that I thought was actually very interesting by Congresswoman Mace is how much she kind of stands up for Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who is right now supposedly getting threatened to lose her leadership seat. Liz Cheney did vote for impeachment, and she's number three Republican in the House. What kind of confidence do you have in the Republican leadership? And um, does it bother you that after the insurrection, after the riots, yeah, um, the two top leaders, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, and a hundred and 30 plus of your colleagues still voted uh, to challenge these results. Um, does that does that uh, put some does that make you question the leadership's decision making? I will tell you, for me as a new member, it was enormously disappointing. I literally had to walk through a crime scene where that young woman was shot and killed to get into the chamber to vote uh, that night to certify what was supposed to be a ceremonial uh, vote to certify the Electoral College. And yet my colleagues continued to object. And they knew this was a failing motion. These objections were not going to work and they were unconstitutional. Um, and so it is enormously disappointing. It's one of the reasons I've been such a strong voice to point out the lies uh, that have happened. Congress had no business overturning the Electoral College, and neither did the vice president. And I praise Vice President Mike Pence for standing up and correcting some of those untruths that day on January 6th. But we have reconciliation that needs to happen within our own party. We need to rebuild the Republican Party. We need to rebuild our country. And I'm counting on my colleagues to, to join us, to be that new voice for the Republican Party, to lead us out of this crisis going forward, because our country is counting on us. Will Liz Cheney um, survive any challenges to her leadership position? I believe she will. And the irony in all of this, Chuck, is that the same people that were complaining and screaming about the president being silenced on Twitter want to silence a dissenting voice within our own party. And so I find I find that very hypocritical and very disappointing because we should uh, embrace dissension. We should embrace debate. Yeah, her answer here feels a lot more intellectually consistent with her frustrations over what happened during the insurrection, her process argument in the last answer, I don't know. It just feels like a cop-out to me. Possibly. I mean, I'm not saying she's not political and she's not trying to find a good answer out of this. Yeah. Like, I, I, I'm i not saying she's not. But it's a voice that's different. Yes. And it's a new voice in Congress. And, you know, seems like she's willing to ruffle feathers and has no problem in calling out hypocrisy. And, and her own leadership, yeah. It, within her own party, yeah. And so... I just give kudos to the Meet the Press team for finding her, for booking her, and for her for actually coming on to the show. A lot of points could have fallen through to not have this happen. Yeah, very interesting new voice. Brendan, what is something in journalism that stood out to you in the two shows you watched? Yeah, so I did want to highlight, you know, this is something we talk a lot about the Sunday show hosts and 
the way they ask tough questions to politicians. Sometimes it can get frustrating when it sounds like a host has their own agenda, their own personal feeling about a topic one way or another. And we've gotten emails about this where the questions are framed in that way. Yes. But sometimes a host can do a really good job of taking kind of the devil's advocate position or asking a guest to answer to their own critics. And that can create a very reasonable, thoughtful exchange of ideas, which is what we ultimately want, right? I mean, we ultimately would like to see out of political dialogue the best, most honest arguments of each side in debate, in actual debate. The strongest argument versus the strongest argument to get a sense of what's true and what's appropriate and what's right. And I feel like George Stephanopoulos did a really good job of this at several occasions during his interview on This Week with Democrat Joaquin Castro, who is one of the House impeachment managers, of course, from the state of Texas. Take a listen to how George tries to challenge Representative Castro and the arguments for impeaching President Trump. One of the points the Republicans have made in opposing impeachment, those who did oppose it, uh, they've raised a First Amendment argument, pointed out that in his rally speech, the president also at one point told the crowd to remain peaceful. Yeah, I think this is quite separate from the First Amendment. Uh, This is a president who, knowing that he was in a very combustible, emotionally charged situation, continued to work up his supporters, not once or twice, but repeatedly over and over, telling a big lie about a stolen election, even though, as you know, George, they went to court uh, 60-something times and lost about 61 times in court. Uh, And so this is a president who knew what he was doing uh, and watched as that mob... Uh, took over the U.S. Capitol, and in fact, took over the Senate floor of the United States uh, and was slow to act after that to quell it. Cotton has said he won't vote to convict because a Senate trial of a former president is unconstitutional in his view. He cited the writings of retired appeals court judge Michael Luddig, who wrote in The Washington Post, the very concept of constitutional impeachment presupposes the impeachment, conviction, and the removal of a president who is, at the time of his impeachment, an incumbent in the office from which he is removed. Uh, are you concerned that they may be able to find that this is not a constitutional, this, kind of, this trial? Uh, I don't believe so. In fact, one of the other purposes of impeachment uh, in this case is to make sure that, the, that President Trump is not able to run for federal office again, that he's not able to seek the presidency. The reason for that is that somebody who incited a riot, an attempted coup of the United States government, should not be president again. So it's not just about uh, making sure that there are consequences to his behavior. Certainly it's that. But even after he's left office, it's also making sure that he can't run for president again. So while we didn't see, or certainly I didn't see, any people arguing the points that George mentioned here, these are likely to be major points of argument when this impeachment goes to trial in the Senate which could be as early as this week or as late as three months from now. But it is good to see these arguments answered by one of the impeachment managers and and to see what answers they're they're leaning on, right? I mean, when George asked this question, I thought back to one of the many podcasts I heard this week, which pointed out that there actually has been an example of an impeachment after a member of the president's cabinet, I believe, was out of office, but the impeachment moved forwards 
in Congress. And this was like in the 1800s. So there is precedent for that actually happening. But that's not what he leaned on. He leaned on what is the actual point of this impeachment? Yeah, it's making sure that there are this isn't a horse and pony show, right? Right. That they want to make sure that people understand, Americans understand that they're going through all of these motions and willing to actually go through an impeachment trial because something will come of it at the end. Absolutely. So that's all of the reflections and observations we made about the Sunday shows. But one thing that's kind of been on our mind is actually commenting on just good journalism of the week overall. Yes. And we've kind of floated back and forth how we want to do it. And we're not really totally sure. But one thing did stand out today that we thought we would be remiss if we did not mention. And that is some of the new video releases, video compilations that came out from The Washington Post and The New Yorker from journalists who were at the Capitol during the insurrection. So this is video footage from journalists themselves. And I mean, I have a lot of words, <laughs> Brendan, but before we do that, did, did you have any of the comments or, or thoughts about the, these? Well, yeah, each of us, each of us looked at a different one. We didn't look at the same one. So we can kind of have a conversation a little bit, just a few points that stood out to us. I do want to point out the Washington Post wasn't about a specific journalist from the Post and their video, but it was an effort made by the Post team to pull together lots of videos oh, and try to construct a timeline of events. And it's like this 14 minute video complete with diagrams and arrows and showing you like where things happen, when things happen, when they happened. And just I'll be very quick and brief with this about what kind of stood out to me. Two takeaways. Number one, it was absolutely like, like, first of all, we know that it's unacceptable that the Capitol Police kind of had one job, and that was to protect the Capitol. And that did not happen, right? People came into the Capitol. Certainly there were individual officers who protected the Capitol, but when the Capitol is breached, when people are getting in there without any security clearance whatsoever, bringing weapons, bringing all sorts of things in, that's a failure, right? We know that. But what really struck me was that there were lots of failures throughout this process. And one of the absolutely insane things, insane pieces of mismanagement that stood out from this compilation video that the Post put together is that the House was still in session for so long after the breach happened kind of on the Senate side. And they were just, members of the House were just hanging out in the chamber just for, for I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes while armed insurrectionists are in the building. I just, it was unbelievable to me. And multiple times they like passed within, I think, 60 feet of these rioters. I, I couldn't believe it. How is Capitol Police and Secret Service and all the possible security who are on site at the Capitol building permitting these representatives to remain in the House chamber for as long as they let them be there, for as long as they have them there? I imagine the first time someone walks into that building, it should be like a fire alarm is pulled. The building is on fire. Get the hell out of the building as safely and as quickly as possible. And that wasn't happened. That right. didn't well, you're happen. talking to, And it seems to me as you're talking about after leadership was taken out, there were lots of members of yes. Congress still in chambers. Yes. Tens, if not hundreds of them. So that, that struck me. And the final thing is there was a moment when the insurrectionists are pounding on the door of the house chamber and there are representatives still in the room 
and you hear in one of these videos someone tell the representatives, take off your flag pins because you've got these pins on your suit, and that could be a way that the insurrectionists can identify you as a member of Congress. Take off your pins now. And they were like removing their pins so they could pretend, oh, I'm just a staffer. I'm not a member of Congress. And there was one one you know congressperson who was calling his wife and thinking to himself, oh my God, this is like the calls you know that were that were gut-wrenching that people had in the Twin Towers as they were on fire to their loved ones. Is this that last call I'm making? Your observations are, are definitely very compelling, and I am eager to watch the Washington Post one. The New Yorker one were very different. They were kind of following one or two journalists. And what stood out to me was how out of control, like, some of these Capitol Police were so... It, it's just hard because clearly some of them worked so hard to try to protect the Capitol, literally saved members in the Senate, got injured, some Crushed died. by the door, yeah. And so I don't want to not validate that, but there were other ones that were just scared out of their minds. Capitol Police. Capitol Police. And there were others who... I don't know if it's because they were scared or they didn't know what to do or they were incompetent. I don't know. But they were just in the halls with these insurrectionists. And just like standing around, standing around. Like there's literally a point and where there's this like one Capitol Hill police officer. And he looks like he's like 23 years old or something. He looks just like a kid. And He's trying to get them out of the chambers. And he's like, please leave. Please leave. Like, this is a very sacred place. Like, can you guys please just go now? And he's like trying to rationalize with them and and, and get them out. And it's just one kid, right? Like, it's just one officer trying to convince these people to leave who are being profoundly disrespectful and, and criminal and violent. But... <laughs> I don't know. Tamir Rice was shot on a playground for being 12 years old with a plastic gun. And like those realities are so hard to hold in my heart and and to like, I don't want to be cruel, but it's hard to be sympathetic when black and brown men have just been like brutalized by police for so long. And these white terrorists just roamed the halls and sat on the speaker's seat and took pictures and joked. How does that happen? Like, it happens because we're in America. That's how it happens. But it's just, it's like so profoundly painful to observe and to know and to see firsthand. The other thing that was literally insane to me is that a group of these white Terrorists literally prayed in the chambers. And if your God is telling you to attack your Congress and to attack your government and to threaten them with violence and harm, like if you love someone who thinks that their God wants them to do something like this, like you need to do something to stop it and to report them and to hold them accountable. Like these men were literally praying as if they had some divine direction. And it is is something we've seen from other terrorists, right? Right, exactly. And like, <laughs> it's just, it's it's maddening that 
it's just the whole thing is is completely wild and makes it feels like your brain is on fire and and we're gonna see a lot more of this i guess is the other thing i just want to say like this is just the start this is the type of stuff we're gonna see as the impeachment goes on as more video gets released as we hear about more sons of judges who were in part of this insurrectionist part of active army reserves who are part of this insurrection like well, These people are in our communities. They're in our lives. And it's time that people recognize that it's not just some like randos in some state you've never been at. Yeah, like, it, I mean, that, that's not what we're dealing with. For anybody who thinks still that this was not a dangerous event that took place, even though all these people died. For anybody who is clinging to the photo of the little grandmother holding the, the American flag and thinking that's what happened. Just try to connect that with the fact that our security apparatus and defense apparatus now believes that this was so dangerous that in order to stop this from happening again, they need to shut down essentially half of Washington, D.C. and fill it with 25,000 National Guard troops. They think this is so dangerous that to stop it from happening again, that is the size of force they need. That's how dangerous this was. And that's what we're, and I mentioned this last week, and this is the type of potential violence we're going to see. And they, and some of them said it, like, go to your state capitals and do this. Go to your counties and do this. Like, it's it's not an abstract threat. And like, we need to get it right in D.C. so other people know how to get it right in their own respective communities and to govern safely without being attacked by white terrorists. That's our goal for 2021. Yes. Okay, Naomi, show ratings really quickly since we've gone a little long here. I think I'll just start. I'll say this week, I'll say it was a seven just because of the the trouble with the opening and the closing as we talked about and then face the nation. I'm going to give it a six. Lots of interesting information about COVID, but unfortunately, very little talk about impeachment at all. Yeah, it just it just kind of missed the mark a little bit on some of the top stories of the week. I would give Fox News Sunday, I think, a a six. I think Fox News Sunday, in comparison to all the other Sunday shows, really downplayed the violence that we saw on January 6th at the Capitol. And I think it's very telling that they're making it just kind of like another Trump crisis as opposed to a very violent moment that the party has to grapple with. So, Like they did last week, kind of. And, and we're probably going to see that a lot. I don't know. So I just want to call it out every time. So Fox News Sunday, I think I would give a six. State of the Union, I would give, I think, a nine. It was phenomenal. Like I said, that interview with Congressman Raskin was so important. There were also really important interviews with incoming chief of staff for President-elect Ron Klain that I thought was very, very important. And also the Democratic whip, Dick Durbin. The inter- All on State of the Union? All on State of the Whoa. Union. Yeah, great, great booking. What held them back from a 10 then? Well, I really didn't like his interview with H.R. McMaster. Mainly, I didn't like anything that H.R. McMaster said rather than <laughs> anything Jake said. So that's kind of what... And also, I don't really believe in giving full marks. So I don't know if I'll ever give You'll a 10. never give a 10? I don't think so. I think you will. 
Now I'm never going to give a 10. <laughs> so State of the Union will be, I think, a 9 in my book. And for Meet the Press, I think I would give an 8. It was an overall pretty strong episode. I was a little frustrated with the interview with Dr. Fauci. I thought he let him off the hook a little too easily in explaining the issues and potential solutions in the vaccine rollout. That's important to talk about. Yeah. All right. Well, that takes us to our dialogue challenge this week. I did want to highlight something I tweeted about, which is if you want to see some great dialogue mm, on right. the screen in a fictional setting inspired by true events, we'll go on to Amazon Prime and watch One Night in Miami, the first movie directed by Regina King. Who is just a queen among queens. She's so amazing. Incredible, incredible script based on a play. And it's basically imagining a real-life event that took place right after Cassius Clay, who went on to become Muhammad Ali, won his first title as the world champion boxer. And after his winning fight, he went to have a celebratory night and discussed all things success, race, America with three of his colleagues and friends, which includes Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, the singer, and Jim Brown, the top, one of the top NFL players of his time. And it was just, it was a phenomenal, like the reviews are great. Everything that they're saying, all the glowing reviews, they deserve it all. It was, it was so well done. But just so much great political dialogue. So much good dialogue. So that's our challenge. <laughs> Go watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Go watch it. And, uh, and of course the inauguration, which is on Wednesday at noon. Another lively Wednesday. If you have any thoughts about today's show, about One Night in Miami, or about the inauguration, you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow me at Beastidal on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Naomi underscore, and you can always follow the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk with you in the Biden administration. A new era. See you then. Bye. Bye.